It took me three days to make this dress. That means it would take me 129 days to feel those orders that you promised for Monday. No wonder you're nervous. A sensitive artist like you on the brink of greatness. Stick to me, and you'll become a dynasty. I'll stick to you, and I'll become a one-woman sweatshop. I just wanted to let you know about my study group. Oh, don't be a buddy, daddy. I'll be your study buddy. I'm about to embark on one of the great challenges of my scientific career. This work right here is going to change history. I think this is going to be our greatest mission. I don't have time to study. I'll never get into Stanford. I got big plans for you tonight. I got maps. I got charts. I'm going to see you through this because my credibility is on the line. It's at this point that you'll want to start taking notes. Welcome to the Sitcom Study, the podcast where we contemplate the TV shows we grew up with and search for the truth and wisdom within the tropes and cliches. Amy, what is our topic today? Today, we are talking about starting a business. Yes. This was one I recognized early when watching maybe one of the shows that we're going to talk about today that's about a bunch of high school students, and I started noticing at a young age... There always seems to be these TV episodes where somebody has to make something on an assembly line and they get overwhelmed and they have too many orders to fill and everything goes crazy. Well, and that happens whether or not they start a business. Like That's the gag in Lucy and there's a gag in uh, Laverne and Shirley that's like that as well. But um, yeah. Assembly line based humor has been a linchpin of the American sitcom. But our trope today is not assembly line based humor. It is starting a business. And there's lots of shows out there where people get their first job, you know. But this one is particular in that it's not their first job, it's that they're trying to or are successful at starting a business. We should say we're talking specifically about kids starting businesses. These are the episodes where you've got, you know, your 12 year old, 14 year old kids get in their head that they're going to make a lot of money and they bite off more than they can chew. So let me ask you, uh, did you have a job or a business at a unusually early age? Would you count selling Girl Scout cookies? <laughs> sure, I guess. Um, well, then that yes. But I lived. In, I grew up in Florida, and I lived in a neighborhood, um, as many neighborhoods in Florida do, that had a lot of fruit trees. And those fruit trees, you can't possibly, if you have one in your yard, eat all that comes off of it. So there were tons of grapefruit, oranges, and tangerines that would just kind of collect in people's yards. And so we would go around, my friends and I would go around with our with our wagons and pick up grapefruits and things from people's yards before they rotted and then try to give them or sell them to the other neighbors that didn't, which was just hilarious because they could just as easily go yeah, pick them up. Sounds a little well. bit like a racketeering scam. Nobody yeah. ever bought them, but it was fun. And it was, we rolled around the neighborhood with our wagon. Yeah. You're reminding me of businesses I had forgotten about. I used to take the little comic books that would come with the He-Man toys. They <laughs> they each came with a little like three inch by three inch comic book. And I remember one time I tried to set up a little flea market in front of my house selling those. The one I was going to mention was that I went around the neighborhood, not unlike Beaver Cleaver, with my friend Ellis and solicited people to rake their yard, you know, to do yard work. And however many days or weeks later, when this old lady called me 
to rake her yard, I decided I was going to make it a solo job. And I didn't include my friend Ellis. And I went over there and completely failed because I was like an 11-year-old kid and I could not handle the labor of raking this lady's yard. I was definitely not experienced with yard work at the time because my parents didn't really make us do it. The whole thing was a disaster. And I basically had to give up and say like, sorry, I can't do this. So So lesson learned. Lesson learned. No yard work for you. So overall, I would say when a person under the age of 15, 16 tries to join the workforce, a lot of times the results are questionable. What are the shows we're talking about? So on today's episode, we are talking about Leave it to Beaver. This is season four, episode 36, back when they had 40 episodes in a season. My goodness. That episode is called Beaver Goes Into Business. And then we have the Patty Duke show, season one, episode 18, The Tycoons. But if you're looking for it on streaming services, it is um, season one, episode 34. And then we have Saved by the Bell, season four, uh, episode three, Screech's Spaghetti Sauce. Again, if you're looking for it on streaming services, oftentimes that's season five, just because they're including Miss Bliss in there. And then uh, the last one is iCarly, which is season four, episode four, I Sell Penny Teas. Right. So we're switching gears back to the more kids-oriented shows. Last time we were talking about the will-they-won't-they romances. Leave it to Beaver obviously has a huge footprint, or I don't even know if that's true anymore. When we were growing up, it had a huge footprint. So what's your experience with Leave it to Beaver? Leave it to Beaver was one of those ones that I heard my parents talk about. You know, it was on this. We're going to be watching, I think, season four. Yeah, we're looking into season four of Leave it to Beaver. And this was on in 1961. So this was one my mom's family didn't have a television for most of her childhood. My dad's family did. This was definitely one that my dad would talk about watching when he was a kid. But I think maybe in passing for me in terms of reruns on Nickelodeon or Nick at Night or something like that was not one that I was super familiar with. No, there's once you're into the 80s and 90s, there's not a lot of appeal to a young person, I think, for these shows. I think if anything, Leave it to Beaver, Donna Reed, Andy Griffith, they symbolized this idealized 50s and 60s naive worldview where the way that we knew about them was lines in movies would say, hey, go back to Mayberry or, hey, hey, you know, go tell it to Aunt B or. Yeah. Oh, uh, she's she's just like June Cleaver. She's always cleaning such a housemaker. Was your wife, Donna Reed? You know, is that kind of reference. And we see that. We'll talk about how these shows, even though there are, of course, conflicts within them are very much meant to soothe and pacify and give a very pleasant, peaceful, sort of prosperous vision, I think, of, you know, family life. Yeah, absolutely. I remarked on it when we were watching it that the Patty Duke show, she, you know, in the theme song, they sing about your favorite trope of identical cousins, but also that Patty's character is is from... Brooklyn Heights, yet they're living in this like palatial brownstone. Well, that's something if we can count on sitcoms for anything, it is 
blithely underestimating the cost of living of New York City. But before we get to that, leave it to Beaver. It begins just like Andy Griffith with credits that are narrated to us in addition to being printed on the screen that I always get a kick out of that. Anyway, so let's get into this story. So what's Beaver's catalyst for wanting to start his lawn mowing business? There wasn't one. It was just an idea he had. We start with Ward Cleaver coming home and June Cleaver having this sixth sense of when he's going to walk in the door. So she comes down the stairs exactly at the moment he walks in the door. The way he enters is so strange. It just, I couldn't put... I couldn't put my finger on it, but it in no way resembles a human being walking through a door as though they had come from some other place. It was just so obvious that this guy had been standing on the other side of this door on this set. Yeah, it's weird. Well, so, I mean, she does this throughout the the episode and uh, to my understanding throughout the series, it, you know, she knows exactly when everyone's about to walk in the door and she's right there, even if she's been upstairs or in another room or is elbow deep in uh, kitchen grime. But so she, she walks over as he's coming in the door. Hello, honey kiss. Beaver has something he wants to talk to you about. And they have this whole little exchange about how Beaver's left his jacket outside. We get this physical thing where they're like turning the jacket that's inside out, right side out. And then when we go upstairs, or no, it's the next day, Wally is getting ready to leave. And he is doing the same thing with his jacket. His jacket has been left inside out. So I thought that was a funny bit of business that happened twice. But yeah, they're having this whole conversation about Beaver not leaving, his, you know, oh, he, he left his jacket hanging on a bush. Well, you know, I guess he's got us there because we always get onto him for leaving it on the ground. Um, and then the parents are having this little exchange. And so, well, he, I guess he's got us there. So we can't complain. You know, he's going to he's going to say that. Hilarious. We're all rolling on the floor laughing. You told me not to put it on the floor, Dad. So I put it on a bush. Well, and that the parents are anticipating that's what they're going to hear rather than just having like the comedy. Never always from gets you on the technicalities. That's right. So then Ward goes upstairs. June Cleaver doesn't know what he wants to, what Beaver wants to talk to Ward about. She just says that he, you know, he said it's important. So he goes upstairs and as we, before the dad walks in the door, we have Wally and Beaver, the two brothers sitting in, sitting in their room talking and, and Beaver's like pumping Wally for information. Like, okay, how should I approach this? Do you think he'll be in a good mood? Do you think it was a good day? Like he's really nervous about asking his dad this thing and we still don't know what it is. And then we see, oh, he wants to start this business and he needs to borrow his dad's tool which has been a no-no. Right. So yeah, he's not even obsessed with the financial aspect of it the way that the characters in the later shows are going to be. He just thinks it'll be fun to start a job and start cutting lawns, as they like to say in this show. Mowing was not really the the term du jour. Well, so, I mean, they were using one of those old push mowers, so yeah. they truly were cutting so lawns. He's doing basically like I did as a kid. He's going around the neighborhood soliciting business. And he's got a friend, yes, just like you did, his friend Gilbert. He's got Gilbert. Now, I did make a note. I love how these two dress. You know, I remarked in the Brady Bunch. I wasn't into the gigantic collars and everything. I love these early 60s jackets they have and the dark denim pants. I just thought these two kids looked sharp as hell. But They anyway, look like mini yous because that is how you dress now. That is, I wish I wish I had jackets like this. I <laughs> wish I could in the pull closet off. upstairs. I don't know. Anyway, uh, <laughs> they go around and the next big story beat is that 
Eddie, right? Wally's friends, the older brother's friend shows up. Who the hell is this guy? He shows up to the house and starts ratting out Beaver. He doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. He doesn't know what the situation is. He goes, uh, hey, listen, uh, Mrs. Cleaver, I don't want to tell tales out of school, but your kid's walking around the neighborhood with lawn mowing equipment. So he's probably up to no good. And she's like, oh, no, don't worry. He's just starting a business. Well, and he has this little glint in his eye. So I'm sure we've seen in other episodes. Again, I don't really know the show, but this kid's a bad influence. And they and they laugh about that as the time goes on. They're like, don't listen to Eddie. He never has anything to say. He's usually usually giving you the business, as they say multiple times, which I guess in 1961, giving you the business meant trolling you because that's what he's doing. He sucks. And he has the nerve to say to Wally, I hear your creepy brother's out cutting lawns. He's the creep. He'll also talk about the dressing. He's got this weird ass sweater on the whole time. <laughs> he does. He's it's a double one. collar sweater. It's got like a V-neck, but then underneath the V-neck is the knit in a different direction and then another collar. Yes. It's very strange. It was a bizarre choice and every single other character is dressed amazingly the dad's well, cardigan looks exactly cool. i think it's i think it's a choice on purpose the other choice that's made is the minute he gets upstairs into wally and beaver's room he starts looking in the mirror and like wiping his finger on his teeth because they're gonna go walk by some girl's house because the girls are having a meeting like he's established even if he hasn't been established before as being a creep he's established yeah, as a creep right a, away he's a kimmy gibbler he's a he's an annoying sort of yeah like you said a bad influence friend and his bright idea is to put in a fake call to to call little beaver and wilbur whatever the hell his name Gilbert. is and say we've got a job for you across town to make them go across town for no reason he's like maybe we'll get lucky and they'll get yelled at yeah, he's trying to mess with them. That's what he wants to do. I it, Maybe he doesn't have a little brother, so he's trying to take out all of his mischievousness on Wally's little brother. But no, he's not. He's not nice. But then, in, you know, Wally's like, ah, nah, let's not. You know, he just he doesn't tell his friend that that he thinks he's a dick, but he just kind of redirects him. Which so then the next thing we see, Beaver and Gilbert are out on the street and they're walking from house to house and they're not really having any success. So. So they come upon, you know, a couple different houses and then it's a no. And then they go up to this other house and this kind of, you know, gruff looking man walks out in his um, undershirt only. And he's like, what do you want? And the kids are like, uh, my friend has something to say. And then Gilbert's like, yeah, my friend said your lawn looked pretty. What did he say? Crap. He didn't say crummy. Crummy. He's like, yeah, my friend said your lawn looked pretty crummy. And the guy's like, get out of here. I'll take care of my own crummy lawn. Yeah. And they don't really want to do that guy's lawn because he was a little scary so then they leave and gilbert's like i don't want to do this anymore you know people aren't nice i'm tired of getting yelled at let's be done so they start heading home and they come upon wally and eddie and eddie tricks them and is like oh well when i was your age i used to stand at, at the grocery store and wait for people to go inside and then i dust off their car and when they came back i'd hold my hand out and be like oh yeah, I cleaned your car. He's telling them the squeegee guy business model, right? He's saying like the people that come across you when you're stopped at traffic in your car and wipe down your windshield without you asking for it and then want money. Yeah, he's telling him 
do that. Yeah, he's saying do that and that he he did it and he used to get 50 cents all the time. So the kids believe him, you know, Beaver and Gilbert believe him and off they go to find some nice house where they can trim the grass and wait for the, somebody to come home. And that's the whole next bit, right? We see them working and working and they're sweating and they're working so hard and they do the, you know, oh, I did my half of the lawn. Now it's your turn. And they, we get a shot of the lawn and the lines yeah, on the wavy. lawn are all wavy and it doesn't look good. And then a guy pulls up in his car, parks in front and he's like, what are you kids doing? And they're like, we're, we we did your lawn, mister. Can we have some money? And he looks over and he sees the lawn with all the wavy lines. He's like, I pay a gardener, a professional gardener to do this. You've messed it up. Get out of here. Yeah, he says, I'm not going to pay you. You're lucky I don't sue you. Now, one thing I wanted to note, with all these outdoor scenes, it always strikes me as odd in these older shows. When we're watching the show, it takes place in the house, the living room, or whatever. And all of a sudden, they're just walking outside in what is obviously a real neighborhood and we're still hearing the laughter and everything and i'm always like what is this how did they do this and well, so they definitely have dubbed the voices back over because yeah, it doesn't lot, you know you you can tell it doesn't exactly match up yes, but you know and times, the sound is different yeah a lot of times they have that weird you know adr looped dialogue in those scenes but you know maybe it's a case-by-case thing but we looked into it this time and it turned out that yeah leave it to beaver is shot single camera like a movie and in order to get the organic laugh track, they would play the edited footage for the secretaries and other people around the office to record their laughter. And so it's interesting to me that I think that was much more common in these old days. And then the process got streamlined and they figured out, what are we doing? Why don't we just shoot everything on the set, you know, get it all knocked out in this one day. And we're not going to traipse around the neighborhood setting up cameras as though we're shooting a feature film. But so it's interesting that these old timey shows in some ways are more cinematic and they get out in the world more than the shows we grew up with. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, it is, it's nice. It looks nice. You got natural light. There's, you know, there's sunlight and, you know, it's, it's still black and white days. So having good light makes all the difference in terms of what we're seeing and the reason the clothes pop and all of that, even though they're on grayscale. Yeah. So. They run on home after this man yells at them and Gilbert's like, you know, he was already done and uh, and he's like, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm out. They're home and we come, we're back in the house and we see just this fabulous scene of June Cleaver. She's got the rubber gloves on that are like perfectly fitted for her and she's cleaning the stovetop and it is sparkling and you know in the perfect dress and pearls which are her signature um and so we have this whole little scene there and and i honestly don't even remember what the dialogue in that scene was because i was just so enraptured with the cleaning that she was doing yeah again it's establishing this aspirational world where this is what we want our lives to be and even the problems that they have are like problems that you would aspire to have. Right. Your kid starts a lawn mowing business and he doesn't really know what he's doing. You know, what what a life that would be if that's the, the worst thing that happens to you that day. And yeah, talking about the domestic situation and everything, 
Yeah, I was comparing this in my mind to that Married with Children episode, which begins with the hilarious scenario of the kids starving because the mom couldn't be bothered to have food in the house. You know, we're we're a long way away from that that mindset of let's have fun with how bad it can get with a family. You know, that's not the mindset here. Yeah, absolutely. And I think something like Married with Children and Roseanne and some of those other ones are really an answer to that. It's it's more about let's put a real family or where we can get comedy out of the reality and also have, you know, get comedy out of like, hey, well, at least I'm not as bad as them. You know? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And real conflict and real stakes. I would say all in the family is maybe a, a turning point for right. that. But yeah, what happens in the story is that, you know, or so he thinks, Beaver finally gets a legit customer when he eventually goes to this woman's house. So she explains, my husband's away, so I haven't been able to mow the lawn. Go at it. <laughs> Right. So this is another day. I think they had a conversation at the dinner table and Beaver was like, well, you know, I guess we're done with that. You know, the we can't really trust the grownups and Wally, you're not Wally. Eddie gave me the business. So I, I think we're done. Gilbert doesn't want to do it anymore. And they kind of prop him up and they're like, you know, don't lose faith. Like, get out there. Try again. Don't go. You know, don't listen to Eddie. You should never listen to Eddie you know, go on and, and knock on doors and get your payment situation settled prior to do it the right way. And so he says, okay, I'll give it another try. And he goes out. Gilbert has said, no, he's gone out by himself and he meets, he come, you know, he goes to this woman's house and he gets a yes and they settle on $5. And so he goes to get Gilbert and Gilbert is, <laughs> it's this great scene where he's like eating this peanut butter and jelly sandwich and drinking a glass of milk. And he can't say two words without taking a drink, saying two more words, yeah. taking a bite, and saying two more words like he's just stuffing his face and and the reason he he says you know what i'm out i'm not gonna come back into it i think you know if i do want to get some money for this summer i'll just get a paper route because if you whine enough your dad will deliver them for you and then he goes back in the house to finish his sandwich yeah so he mows this lady's lawn everything's fine trims the bushes does the edger did you see that old-fashioned edger mm. It was so cute. It's like a quarter of the width of one of those old-fashioned push mowers, and it was the same kind of thing, and it just went right along the side of her driveway. I thought that was neat. So he gets paid by check, takes it home, and I noticed, despite the fact that they have the ability to film wherever they want and they don't limit themselves to the set, a lot happens off-camera. In the show, there's a lot of like, oh, honey, you're home. Let me explain to you something that happened instead of actually show it in a scene. So in this case, the mom explains to the dad, we went to the bank. Turns out that lady was some kind of uh, low down. Uh, what, what, <laughs> she just what? said she didn't have enough. She didn't even have enough money in her yes. account to cover a five dollar. Yes. She says. If it hadn't been such a big bank, Beaver would have cried. I don't know why the size of the bank matters, but yeah. The there were a lot of people around. I guess. The lady's check bounced. Right. And this is the next day because, you know, he was so happy when he got home. He said, my faith in grownups is restored. I trust them again. This is so great. And 
the mom is like, oh, you know, Beaver, I'll pick you up from school tomorrow and we'll go to the bank to cash it. And then that night, Ward comes home and we get, once again, magically she knows when he's walking in the door, meets him at the door, and like you said, fills him in on all of what has happened. Yeah. And so Beaver is heartbroken. He's like, burn in hell, lady, for writing me a bad check. No one is concerned about the fact that this woman apparently doesn't have any money. Like That's that's not a concern for anyone. The dad goes, well, maybe there's a, a rational explanation. Maybe a deposit didn't clear in time, he said, for the $5 lawn mowing check. Like That means that this person is having serious problems in their life. Right, which is what June Cleaver was saying when he came in. But because Beaver has lost all faith in all grownups, Ward is like, let's just give her one more chance. Yeah. Like maybe she wasn't trying to rip you off. And what we don't know, because again, it's all handled off screen and Ward comes back in with a $5 bill saying that the woman took care of it and that she was so embarrassed. She had switched banks. She wrote him a check from her old checkbook. She's so apologetic, but we don't get any of that actually happening. It could be that Ward just gave him the $5. I hadn't considered that. You're absolutely right. I took it at face value that they just did that in this show all the time. They just said, oh, I talked to your teacher and she said, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, I had believed him that he called the lady. She said, sorry, that was the wrong checkbook personally came by to hand him a $5 bill, but didn't bother to pop into Beaver and say, sorry for the bad check. Thanks for mowing my lawn. But yeah, I would say, unlike the others, this isn't so much about Beaver having gotten in over his head. It's more that he gets to restore his faith in adults. He gets to restore his faith in in grownups. And that's something that's very important to Ward and June to help him restore And yeah, I think maybe in the not kid land of this TV show, maybe this is a woman who's divorced and or a woman whose husband has left her. And, you know, June Cleaver is now going over to make friends and bring this woman, you know, crockery or whatever, because she's in a hard place for, you know, her hubby you know, like Mad Men style as left her for his secretary or something. Sounds like a backdoor pilot scenario. (laughs) This was their empty nests. I have the whole alternate universe of Leave it to Beaver. (laughs) All right. Are we ready to move on to Patty Duke? The Patty Duke show, season one, episode 18, The Tycoons. But if you're looking for it on streaming, it's still season one later on in the season. Right. So... Let's address this up front. We're not going to get bogged down in this. If you listen to our Doppelgangers episodes, you know that I am of the firm belief that the premise of this show is bunk. There is no such thing as identical cousins. Identical twins happen when a embryo when an embryo We're getting a biology lesson here today, folks. Splits into two separate zygotes in the course of a single pregnancy, resulting in two babies that are genetically identical. Yes, but you can have very close lookalikes and fraternal twins. Now, to your point, when we talked about this the first time, and I expressed my opinion that identical cousins do not exist, you said, well, what if two brothers married two 
sisters. What if twins married twins? Identical twin brothers married identical twin sisters. So in preparation for this rant, I looked up (laughs) identical cousins to see what would come up. And sure enough, there was an article in the New York Daily News or the New York Post, I believe. Both very reputable sources. Right. Which was about exactly like what you described. There is something called quaternal twins, which happen in that scenario, which did in fact take place where identical twins, married identical twins, had babies in the same time frame and produced babies that looked very, very similar and were in fact considered to have the same genetic makeup. Right. If they were to do DNA tests on these children, it would come out that they were both brothers and cousins. Right. But that is not what happened here. The premise of the Patty Duke show is not that two twins married two other twins and had babies. Uh, Yes, but the fathers are twins. The fathers of the two. Played by the same actor that plays the dad. Okay, so it's half that. Yep. I'd like to propose a different theory, which is in the year 1961, the movie The Parent Trap came out, starring Haley Mills as identical twin girls. That was hugely successful. They decided to bite off that idea into a TV show and said, well, we can't make it twins. That's too similar. Let's have them be identical cousins. Nobody's smart enough to know that that's impossible. And there was their show. So the showrunner for this show, Sidney Sheldon, says that he got the idea after seeing Patty Duke on Broadway. Uh, she was on the Broadway. Miracle Worker. Yep. She played Helen Keller uh, in The Miracle Worker on Broadway and then had been doing you know, She was a child actress. So she'd been doing lots of different things. She then did the movie and received an Academy Award at 15 for that. And he started being interested in her for a show. And as he got to know her, noted that there were two very distinct sides of her personality. At this point, she was 20 years away from being diagnosed with bipolar disorder. But he noted this when she was 15. And that is how he came up with the idea for the show. And you're probably right. It had some connection with the, oh, we know how to do the split screen stuff now. Wouldn't that be cool? The premise of the Patty Duke show, if you don't know about it, Two identical cousins, right? Kathy's been most everywhere from Zanzibar to Barclay Square. Patty's only seen the sights a girl can see from Brooklyn Heights. Iconic theme song. It's all about using all those split screen techniques and the body doubles and whatnot to give you a pretty standard 60s sitcom with the gimmick that the two main characters are played by the same actress. Right. And she does a wonderful job acting with nobody or acting with the double who isn't reacting in any way because you can only see the back of their head. So the difference between the two is Patty's hair is flipped out and Kathy's hair is flipped under. So that's how you can tell the difference if you're not kind of right. tracking that's the, the two the visual of difference. And mm-hmm. of course, Kathy speaks with the continental hoity-toity accent. Almost, yeah. And she's, she's got a little something. I wouldn't even say it's an accent. It's it's a lilt. It's it's a little... She has a, she has a lilt and she also has this more like soft yes, tone. Definitely. I would say performance-wise... No notes. She does a great job distinguishing the two characters. On the other hand, I would say this is a bad idea for a show, in my opinion. It's just too distracting. I think the split screen stuff works 
fine, but I would guess she would probably tell you, of course, that was not the most natural way to act, you know, just like anyone, if you're doing a, a movie or a show with a puppet or an animal or something, just those gimmicks get in the way. But that part was fine. It's the body double stuff. It's spending so much of these scenes looking at the back of somebody's head right. when you know that they would never, ever film a scene like that. It's just, and I've noticed as we watch these old shows, that's something that's changed in general. In older TV, they're not as good at avoiding shooting people from the back. And it's very conspicuous to me when you see something in the Brady Bunch or whatever, and you're like, oh, if that were made now, they would block that differently. And we wouldn't be looking at Greg's butt for 10 seconds. <laughs> but in this one, yeah, it's just super weird to be looking at a scene of four or five characters talking, and I'm looking directly at the back of this girl's head. Well, and, and I was odd. noticing how well the body double was at at hiding her face, right? Like there were multiple times, like when they're in the office of the uh, famous designer that they're trying to, um, you know, convince to be a part of their business and they stand up to leave and they have to turn around to leave. They stand up and Patty, who has been doing most of the talking, turns, comes like kind of towards the camera, sort of catty corner. And Kathy stands up and then shakes, like continues to look straight, you know, yeah. forward, but it, you know, yes. with her back to us and shakes the guy's hand. And then as she goes to turn, her body starts to turn, her head doesn't, and the scene cuts away. I mean, she like way to go and there were multiple times like that where i'm like the only way that you would know since it's the back of your head you don't have eyes in the back of your head is just that you have to like keep your eyes glued on the person whose face is facing the camera because then you know that you're not going to see like a cheek or something that might give it away yeah. what a great acting job to have to refine your ability to never be seen by the camera but uh <laughs> great practice what what you find so impressive, and I, I agree it is impressive on the part of the actress, was distracting to me. It was constantly taking me out of it for those same reasons, sort of going, oh, wow, I guess I guess she had to do that in order to avoid being seen to the point where not the first scene, because the first scene is the two of them in the bedroom doing the split screen technique. So that was fine. And I paid attention to that just fine. But the next scene where they get to the high school and they really established the premise of the episode I was so distracted. I don't even remember. Like, I, I remember thinking, I'm going to have to ask Amy what the hell happened here. Because all I've been thinking about is that I've been watching the back of this girl's head for two minutes. That is so interesting because I think I'm more distracted by the split screen because I keep trying to look to see where they've matched the two pieces of film together. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought they did a good job with that in production yeah. as well because I was having a hard time seeing where they were matching these two together. And then the other thing they kind of do is they make one part of the room purposefully look different and it have it end sort of in the middle. So if it doesn't line up, it's fine. I was yeah. Like, oh, that's really smart. Um, so premise of the episode, Kathy has made a dress and we uh, Patty walks in on her while she's finishing it up and is making fun of her because it's got this big cat on it. It's like this big applique cat on this A-line dress that you would wear. It's like a jumper. You'd wear a, a shirt under it and it had a little collar. 
So she's made this dress and um, Patty's like, wow, I wish I could sew like that. I, you know, I was never, I, you know, I failed sewing class or home ec or whatever. I was never able to thread the needle. Why do they make the hole so small? But that's a really, you know, like, what are you going to call that dress? Catnip? Ha ha ha. And they make this joke because she thinks it's kind of a silly looking dress. Well, then the next day they're at school and this is the scene you're talking about. And as they're standing there, Every girl in school starts coming up and complimenting the dress and Patty, and this is who her character is. Like if you go back and watch other episodes of the show or read the synopsis like I did, they're all, Patty always has a scheme. She's, that's what she does. She's the Zach Morris of 1960s Brooklyn. She's like, oh, we can make money on that. Oh, let's sell this. Oh, let's make this into a thing. Let's do this. We're going to, and she's always got, like, she's always trying to take it worldwide. She's always going to go global. She's going to publish a book. She's going to do this thing. Whatever it is, she's going to make it a big deal. So she sees all these girls saying, oh, I really like that dress. You know, where did you get it? And, uh, and Kathy's like, oh, I made it. And she's like, oh, wow. Could, could you, you know, could you make, you know, could you make me one? And Patty's like nine ninety five. And so within a few minutes, they get 43 orders for dresses in different colors, but all with that same idea. And she has said, yep, we'll get them to you by Monday. We can get them to you by Monday. And they go home and Kathy's like, it took me three days to make that dress. There's no way I can make 43 of them by Monday. It's going to take me a hundred and something days to make that many. So then Patty's like, oh, it's okay. We'll start a business and we'll get all the material we need and we'll figure it all out. And Kathy's like, you don't know what you're doing. Like, Yes. What you don't even know that how can we start a business this isn't going to work and she drops she name drops like Henry Madison as the most important designer in the world and so Patty's like, "Well, okay, we'll go see him." Yeah, and this is an interesting contrast because it's something I think about all the time now when you listen to successful people talk about their entrepreneurial past, a lot of times they'll say things like, we didn't know what we didn't know, you know, and Patty has that spirit of like, oh, there's a designer guy who has all the connections. Let's call him, you know, like, let's just keep pushing ahead until something stops us. And I think I used to have that spirit. And now I'm more like Kathy, where it's like, oh, start a business. I don't know. There's people who spend their whole lives doing that. How am I supposed to get up to speed? So it's interesting how they represent those two sides of the coin. But yeah, they call this fashion tycoon or whatever they they do live in new york city so they have you know at least geographically they have access to muckety mucks like this and it's very funny they show us this businessman before they show up getting the call from his secretary saying oh somebody's somebody's on their way they say that they have a important you know, financial opportunity for you or something. Right. The worldwide dress company has called and they have an, you know, an exciting business opportunity for you. And, and he's like, Oh, you better get those fanciest cigars and put out the, the whiskey. Yes. It's, it's two things that made me laugh about this first, that what the secretary tells him is so vague and, insubstantial and what he says is sounds impressive like it's (laughs) as though she said something like the business person called about the business and they want to talk to you about the business business i I think it is just the name of the company it was when she said worldwide dress company his eyes got big and he was like well that sounds important so yeah he says sounds impressive and then he says make sure the bar is stocked and get some great cigars so 
I didn't get it at first, but then of course we understand, oh, what this guy assumes is that this is obviously going to be a man coming to him to talk business. So we need to get the manliest man stuff that's ever manned in the man. Because she says that the, his secretary tells him that the president and vice president are come, would like to meet with you. Right. So when Patty and so they Kathy, must be men. <laughs> yeah. When Patty and Kathy show up to this guy's office, he talks to them as though a triceratops just walked into his office and tried to pitch him business. He's so discombobulated and nervous. Triceratops. And, like it just, it, he's so, and granted, it's surprising that they're teenage girls, but they play that so hard. Like he's completely flummoxed by the fact that these two girls are here pitching him a business idea. Until he sees the dress. Oh yeah. And then he's like, this is great. And Patty, she's like, well, we've already applied for a patent. So, you know, we're fine showing it to you. I mean, like she is just on it. She's not giving away any trade secret secrets at all. She's she's right there. So they show him the dress and he's like, you know, it just needs one thing. Do you mind? And out of his desk drawer, he pulls a little tiny dust broom, mm -hmm. a little whisk and and some huge scissors clips off some of the the little what are those called spires of a dust broom and the little you know things and puts them on and gets some tape and is like now what do you think and gives the cat on the dress whiskers and they're like oh it's exactly what it needed we we were thinking the same thing Patty. i'm pretty sure uh, versace <laughs> did that same thing right yeah uh, totally uh yeah it's very silly but in the world of the show this cat shirt is just, you know, completely blows away anybody who sees it. So he hooks them up. He says, you want, you know, what, what do you, what do you want from me? And they're like, well, we want to get you in on the ground floor. Um, and he's like, you know what? I, I don't need to, I, I believe in you so much. I'm just going to give you to my distributors. Right. Cause they, they don't even want his business per se. What they want is his connections to vendors and resources and okay, stuff where like he, that. Where they can get the little, there's like sparkle bobble things on it, little crystals, the rhinestone -y things. So they want a vendor for those. They want a vendor for the fabric and a vendor for the little like applique pieces that make up the cat. And so what he said was, uh, you know, he looks at the dress and he's like, would you use this fabric again? Because I'd recommend denim. And and Kathy was like, oh, what a great idea. So he's like, great. Here's my denim supplier. Here's my rhinestone supplier. Here's my little applique supplier, you know, for the notions and whatnot. And off you go. And because he recommended them they can use his line of credit so they're able to buy all of this stuff on his credit right. because he said hey i'm sending over these you know the worldwide dress company and they're going to be placing it yeah order. and then they do end up negotiating with a woman at a different company who is an actual buyer Right. So that's a department store. So the way that's established is we have a outside, like an exterior shot of three different, like a little downtowny area or Fifth Avenue back in the 60s or something. And it's like three little department stores right there next to each other. And then we see inside Patty and Kathy are in the office with this woman. They're trying to get some orders. She says she'll take one. And they're like, oh, man, we thought, you know, we thought you would take more. And she's like, okay, we'll take two gross on consignment. Right. And as they're walking out, they're like, wait, did she say two gross? And then Kathy quickly does the math and is like, that's 288 dresses. So this is where Patty's lack of experience is coming back to haunt her because they don't understand that when she says one, she means one gross, not just one 
product. And when she says on consignment, they don't know what the hell that means. Right. So they're getting they, in over their head. Exactly. Which they don't find out until later that night when their dad comes home. He is the uh, editor of some newspaper, the something chronicle, like a local newspaper. And so he starts looking over the the contract that they have with this woman. And he sees all of the, cause the trucks that are delivering all of these supplies are backing up the street. So he can barely get home. Yeah. They've basically set up a makeshift factory in their palatial Brooklyn home. Right. And in of his course, study. Yeah. And of course, Patty's got Kathy doing all the hard labor and she's just kind of popping in to check on her. We get a sort of montage of her just working, working, working. Right. But then when they get this huge order and they said that they would, Patty not realizing that it wasn't two dresses, but 288 dresses said that she'd get it to them by Friday, they have to hire people. So they have 12 seamstresses there. They are, they rented sewing machines. They have all the, you know, they've got all these boxes for shipping and they've got all the the things and they've got their two guy friends working with them and they're making calls and then and so the dad reads over the contract and is like on consignment and they're like yeah we didn't know what that meant and he's like that means they give them back to you if they don't sell them so you're only going to get paid for what they sell and they're like oh no well they'll sell like hotcakes it's no big deal everybody wants them we got 43 orders in in five minutes at school so it'll be fine and they press on yeah and then the next day the dad comes home and the scene is continuing with craziness and we see the tax guy, like the local yeah. city municipal guy walks in and is like, so there's a business operating in this residential base. I think we're going to need to get some zoning permits and yeah, here's, here's some, some W4s for your, for employees. your employees and all this stuff. And they're, and the girls' faces are just like, uh, uh. So much of this I can relate to, starting with their meeting with the department store lady, hearing phrases like guaranteed delivery thrown around. I absolutely related to that as a freelancer when you want a lot of business. And so you're going, great, great, absolutely. But then there's the other side of it. Of, oh, gee, what am I going to do if I can't pull this off? And then the tax guy showing up was just like, geez, this this is like my life. But yeah, everything's <laughs> getting more and more complicated. Right. But they still sort of have everything riding on this gamble of it'll all be fine as long as we sell the dresses. And then they ultimately fall victim to the fickle tastes of the American teenager. Right. Because, and this is the first episode where we meet this Sue Ellen character who we don't get her name, but she does appear in the episode and she becomes the bad guy throughout the series. But she's the one that shows up at school with a dress that looks exactly the same, except instead of a cat, it has a heart with your boyfriend's picture in it or your crush's picture in it. And so all the girls are now gathered around her and they're like, will you make me one with Charlie and one with Paul? I want, get, oh, I can I get one? And so can I get one in green and yellow? And so they're all swamping her with the orders and she's just you know oh yes oh yeah taking them and the girls are like wait don't you want this and uh the girls are like the other girls are like no we're we're we moved on shirt is yesterday's news just like when we moved on from snap bracelets to pogo ball slap bracelets to tamagotchi sure (laughs) Uh, yeah trends change fast and this was one where i think unlike Leave it to be of her. We can say the the moral or the message is pretty clearly, you know, 
don't get ahead of yourself. Don't exploit your identical cousin for money. And just, you know, look before you leap, right? Well, yeah. I mean, the dad early on says, how are you possibly going to start this huge company with zero business experience and financial background? Like, you don't know what you're doing. And so then the next time when he comes home and and they're all moping and sad, but he sees all these boxes and thinks it's all still going on and that shipments are going out. What's really happening is they're returning stuff. He he's like, well, for a minute there, I thought you were going to pull it off, but don't yeah. get too down on yourself. Look, look at all you managed to do with zero experience. Like, don't lose that spark because eventually you'll get that experience. And this was a good learning experience for your first go. Yeah, exactly. And it turns out that the guy who gave them all of, you know, access to his distributors was more than happy to say, oh, you used my credit. So I'll just take this nice denim for myself because I was going to use it anyway. So that's fine. So it all worked out. They didn't end up owing a ton of money when they crunched the numbers to see what they had actually made. They'd made, I think they had something like 25 or 26 dresses left over and each of those were lost profit. So it was like something over 150 bucks that was lost profit. But then the dad was like, hey, you know, I'll say half of that and you guys can take half of that and pay me back $2 a week over the course of, yeah. you know, the course of time or whatever. Exactly. Most of lawns. Um, and yeah, and then they all decide to go out for ice cream. Yeah. And I'll say again, this show has that same character of just very positive prosperous, safe. The consequences of their foibles are manageable. The mistakes are appropriate mistakes for a young person to make. And everything is there to sort of reaffirm, yeah, we wish this was what our lives are like. It's nice to escape to this world of right. Patty and Kathy. And Patty, man, she's a hustler. Like she gets it done. Like that's the kind of person you want fighting for you. <laughs> Yeah, not necessarily the kind of person you want employing you. No, but not sure. you don't want her in charge, but man, you want her to be your go-getter. All right. Shall we move on to Saved by the Bell? Saved by the Bell. This is season four, episode three, Screech's Spaghetti Sauce. Screech's Spaghetti Sauce. Now, this is our second time talking about Saved by the Bell on the podcast, but I feel like the first one we did, the one about Screech's house party... This one is much more quintessential, I think. This takes place much more in the school. We get, we definitely got a Zach scheme in that one too, but I feel like this is one of your straight up down the middle vintage classic Saved by the Bell episodes. I have to say, I was a little disappointed with myself. There was a time when I could identify which episode of Saved by the Bell it is by just that first establishing shot of the hallway or whatever it was in a second. I could go, oh, that's the one where Screech has to pose as an alien to fool the tabloid reporter. I could just tell. <laughs> it was just so ingrained in my brain on a subconscious <laughs> you, level. You've got saved by the bell autism. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And now, by contrast, we had this thing on for five minutes. And I'm going, is this even the right episode? I don't know. Because it starts with a story about the school TV station. Right. So this is they're all taking a communications class that Mr. Belding is teaching. And the project for the year is they have to put on a local cable access TV show. And so that's what they do. And then within, you know, 30 seconds, the show is up and running and everybody has parts and they're 
they're they're ready to go. But it, what you were saying about this being more of like a standard kind of quintessential Saved by the Bell episode as opposed to the other one we watched is kind of interesting because I was watching, I was noticing the parallels in the beats. We've got a con one of our fellow classmates who's not a regular person in the cast, a guest star who happens in this case to be Punky Brewster, Salemun Fry. Um, so we've got to con her out of some money because she's a bad guy. And we've got some sort of scheme where we want to make money or we need to get money. That's happening. Oh, and then we end up with like Screech having a girlfriend both like all of these things happen in both of in both of the episodes yeah it's true certainly a scheme is at the center of 90 percent of all saved by the bell episodes but yeah the way we get there it's interesting because there's already been a saved by the bell episode all about their radio station and they discover the school radio station and each one of them has their own idea of a different show to do so this first act of the story is reminiscent of that. And we get Jesse doing the hard hitting journalism thing where we say, oh, she's going to do an interview with Mr. Belding. And then she grills him about there's $500 missing from the petty cash. And we saw you ride in a BMW or whatever. Yes, because BMWs cost $500. Yeah. No, I, I noticed that too. Even in the 90s, I don't think that that was going to get you there. But yeah, the the story begins as a everybody's got a job to do in this TV station thing. But all of that is sort of to set up. It turns out that Screech has this amazing spaghetti recipe. Spaghetti sauce recipe, right. So that's his grandmother's. So they've got Zach and Lisa are the anchors of this Wake Up LA morning show, cable access morning show they're putting on. And like you said, Jesse's the hard-hitting investigative reporter. Kelly is the weather girl. And what what was Slater's role? He like counted them in like the stage manager. But then he went and was interviewing uh, Screech because Screech was like the celebrity chef that was guesting. That's right. So he was so Slater was interviewing him about his spaghetti sauce and helping him put things into the sauce and then was the first one to taste it and was like, whoa, this is actually good. And then everybody grabs a spoon and comes over and tastes the spaghetti sauce. And it's great. And then Zach is like, oh. I have a brilliant idea. Yeah. So Zach gets dollar signs in his eyes, just like Patty did when she learned that Kathy was this amazing seamstress. We should also say that on the periphery of all this is this new character, Robin, like you said, played by Salil Moon Fry. She has another friend that she hangs out with. Now, I understand this show is set in the Palisades in California. Maybe it's a different scene out there. We did not have gold diggers in my high school. That was not a thing. <laughs> you know, the idea that there would be these. And in the other uh, episode we covered, we had the tycoon character who would like walk around and snap his fingers at his girlfriend. Now we get these stereotypical gold digger girls that are like, oh, I need to find a guy that I'm going to live off of. It just struck me as very grown up problems, as though some. A TV writer walked into the writer's room and was like, don't you hate it how all these rich guys get all the girls? Let's write an episode about that. <laughs> and someone's like, I don't know. The the show's about kids. I don't how think do that's really a thing work? for them. And he's like, no, no, just do it. Well, so her character's name is Robin, Punky, right? Punky's name is Robin. Which is a this... joke, I think, on Robin Leach, because there was also a Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous sketch on another Saved by the Bell episode with Robin Screech, uh, Screech doing his his 
Robin Leach impression. Yes. So I think that's maybe that's maybe that's calling that back. Well, so there without any, you know, intro at all, like right after the right after the credit sequence and the theme song, Zach walks into this classroom and we get Suleiman Fry standing there and he clocks her as being an attractive girl and he walks right up to her and he's like, Hey, you know, you want to go out on a date sometime? And she's like, Well, what kind of car do you drive? Yeah. And he says in nineteen six nineteen sixty six red mustang convertible which he bought in a previous episode or like in the in the previous season and she was like oh call me when you're you know when you get a car that was you know made in the 90s or whatever and is like that's an i don't like old cars peace out because you're cheap and then a few scenes later slater also tries to ask her out um and she's like well where will we go and he's like oh i figured we'd just go get burgers at the max and she's like i am not interested in you unless you're taking me to a five-star restaurant again burn in hell unless you are a millionaire fellow high school student so yeah that's going to play into how this all plays out they decide let's start a business around screech's spaghetti sauce right because everybody wanted after they saw it on the show everyone's like where can we get it how can we get some so they decide to bottle it they go to the chemistry department and they get a bunch of flasks and then they come back and they've got a whole assembly line set up they've got corks they've got labels that lisa has she's like i've printed a thousand and screech has a ton of has made a vat of spaghetti sauce so they're ready to go they and then of course the assembly line comedy yeah you mentioned i love lucy before i think this is an obvious i mean homage is is being generous you know (laughs) i think someone again some schmuck walked into the writer's room and said hey you guys remember that i love lucy with the assembly line let's do something like that it's just all of these unforced errors it's screech letting the vials fall off of the assembly line for no reason it's just this slapstick physical comedy that doesn't really make sense or just doesn't have that believability that good physical comedy has screech can't he can't get to a rag fast enough that nobody's turning off the assembly line he then the things keep falling and falling and falling there was a moment where he like picked up one of the flasks and put it back on the assembly line and it shattered because it's made out of candy glass but he, you know whatever that was an oops and so then they're just trying there and then he hits the thing to make the assembly line go slower and it goes twice as fast Right. And so this causes a little bit of a Mandela effect type thing for me, because you remember that scene and you go, okay, so this is going to be another one where they got too many orders and they couldn't keep up with it. But that's actually not the story here. That slapstick stuff just kind of happens. And we sort of accept like, well, we move on one way or another. They got the spaghetti sauce. Yeah. Just like the earlier scene where they're doing the wake up LA, we get a vignette with each character. Like we get to get Kelly Kapowski in a bathing suit and soaking wet. So it's funny you say vignette because I was thinking when watching this, yeah, they really Saved by the Bell is almost a sketch show as much as it is a sitcom. Like they're always trying to come up with ways to get them in a funny outfit or get them to do a certain thing. So yeah, in the case of this first act with the television station, it gives us a chance to, oh, what if Jesse was, you know, hard-hitting reporter? And what if these two were like TV anchors? And then at the end, we're going to get a whole excuse to get them in disguise. We'll talk about that when we get to it. But what we get in this middle part is a TV commercial where they all get to be 
Italian. And oh, Jesse gosh. gets to be the Italian matriarch with enormous breasts. And uh, yeah, it's a fun sort of Saved by the Bell skit. Yeah, she's wearing this sort of like rotund kind of thing on her hips and butt and in her boob area as well. And then Zach comes in and he's got things stuffed so to make it look like he's got a big gut that he's kind of holding up and everybody's talking in these really bad Italian accents and uh, worst of all is Slater who comes in at the end and he's supposed to be the son and uh, and and he his Italian accent sounds Hispanic like it's just all of them are just bad yeah. Um, and yeah and then but then it ends on Screech who's like you know the the recipe's a secret but the sauce so or the, so the sauce says or the sauce you can have the Secret, she's a mine. She's a mine. That's his catchphrase. Yeah, it's Uncle Screech to the rescue because Jesse is the Italian matriarch, can't cook. That's the joke of the commercial. Right. And yeah, I think that commercial sort of bridges us narratively from the debacle that was their assembly line to the amazing success that is their business. Right. And so we have a moment where they're Zach and Slater and a couple of the other ones are in the hallway talking about what a success the business is going to be. And Punky Brewster, Robin overhears and is like, oh, I know who I'm going after now. And then swoops in on Screech and is like, so are you going to take me out, big boy? And there they go. So we get another specific subgenre of Saved by the Bell episode, which is Screech as high status, right? These rare times when it happened when Kelly got together with Screech in an episode because he helps her study. These rare times when the guys, the cool guys, Zach and Slater, are left looking dumb and going, how can we be more like Screech, right? Because Kelly and Jesse and Lisa are making fun of them that the girl that turned them all down is now Screech's girlfriend. And she's giving him the business. She's saying, you got to get me this necklace and you got to take me here Give and there. Give it in the business, as we say, and leave yeah. it to Beaver. <laughs> yeah. And interestingly, there's it's saved by the bell. So there's no discussion of like, is there anything going on, you know, between these two that makes it worth Screech's while to be doing all this stuff? We no, never get that. no, of course not. But we see them at the max, um, which... Yeah, she doesn't want to go to the max. So she, when Kelly comes over to take their order, she orders off the menu and says, well, they have lobster thermidor next door. So go and get it for me. Here's $40 right. and gives her the money to go. And, and Screech is like, yeah, I'll have lobster thermometer too. That I thought was a genuine, and if you get even one of these in the Save by the Bell episode, you're lucky. Like a genuine, clever, funny laugh what i i i'm as ignorant to screech about this what is the thing she orders lobster thermidor which, thermidor yeah yeah and he goes i'll have the lobster thermometer too <laughs> i think that's very funny but yeah she uh has such disdain that she's like you kelly the waitress you have to go next door to get my food for me so obviously you know screech and her they're alienating themselves from everybody they're like, Zach, you have to talk to Screech. He can't see that his girlfriend is this, you know, money-grubbing, materialistic uh, horror show that doesn't really like him. Right, because Kelly sees Screech give Robin this very fancy watch. And she's like, oh, Pookie, oh, 
but you didn't get me the necklace that goes with it. I just have to have the necklace that goes with it. And that's when Kelly goes over. But what we've skipped over is another classic Saved by the Bell moment that happens in all of these episodes where they contrive a reason to get the girls all in the same, like variations of the same costume and do a dance, a song, or a cheer. Yes. And in this case, it's a Mamma Mia, go get Screech's spaghetti sauce cheer. Yes, I wrote the girls perform a promotional cheer at the max. Yeah, that's part of the ascension of this business to its, you know, success. And so, yeah, all the pieces are in place and they do great. Even Mr. Belding, the principal, likes their stuff. He makes some comments about how his wife can't get enough of the spaghetti sauce. And everything is going fine. Their downfall, like I said, is not that they got too big for their britches with what the order they were trying to fill or anything. It's that they get served a cease and desist letter by a lawyer from the Betty Crocker company who shows up the Betsy Crocker company who shows up in their high school hallway. Right. No visitors pass visible. This man would be arrested on site. (laughs) He walks up to them in their high school hallway and says, I'm from Betsy Crocker. Yes. Uh, Zach says, oh, well, then you can talk to me. I'm his business manager. And if you think we're going to sell you this this recipe for nothing, you're mistaken. And he says, oh, no, we don't want to buy anything from you. We want to sue you. Stop using our recipe. And uh, when he asks Screech about it, Screech goes, oh, of course, it's from Betsy Crocker. That's why it's good. My grandmother couldn't cook. Now, I don't think companies who publish recipes in a book can sue if you use the recipe. Yes. I was wondering about that. What is the intellectual property situation regarding recipes? Because you're right. When Rachel Ray publishes a book, that copyrighted material, it's not the actual recipes. It's all of her editorializing and personality and stuff. Exactly. And just because you follow a recipe doesn't mean it's going to be as good as like, you know, Gordon Ramsay makes it or whatever. Right. And so I think, yeah, I don't, I think that this is a contrivance for the show. I don't think that this is something that can actually happen. I think we may have somehow discovered a plot hole in an episode of Saved by the Bell. What? So they agreed to stop making the sauce. That's fine. But now they need to Get money, why? Just to recoup everything that they spent? Well, so there's two things that happen. They've been using the school's paper and ink to print the labels. They've been using the school cafeteria to buy the produce. They've been using the school kitchen. They've been taking all of the flasks from the chem department. So they've been using all of these school materials. And Belding has this crazy bill for $1,500 in these school supplies, all these materials. And he's like, what the heck is this? And then realizes it once he takes a flask of the um, spaghetti sauce home, realizes, oh my gosh, these kids, I'm going to get that Zach Morris. And he comes and he slams the bill down. He says, you need to repay all of this $1,500. Meanwhile, Screech has been told that his girlfriend is, you know, money grubbing and 
doesn't believe it, but then overhears her talking to her friend Chloe about how he's going to buy her this and buy her that, and he thinks I like him. Isn't that gross? And we get a classic screech, like, sad face, double sad face, drooping down and sad walking. Sad body. Yeah, yeah, sad body, like, sl- like slumping off down the hallway after he overhears this. So he agrees to Zach's secondary scheme, this is where we get the con, to convince Robin to buy the business um, and fork over all this money, and then that's the money they're going to use to pay building. Robin doesn't know that their business is worthless because it's based upon a stolen Betsy Crocker recipe. So they are going to do what is always the first resort in the world of Saved by the Bell, a disguise, right? They're going to have Zach put on a trench coat and a black hat and a weird mustache and pretend to be a German baron of some kind (laughs) who comes to the to the max and basically gets in a bidding war with her says, I want to buy your recipe or your company for a thousand dollars. And she's like, screech, don't sell it to him. I'll give you 1200 and so on. Right. And so, and then the, all the other cast of characters are there and they just are bidding against each other to drive up the bid, which is silly. And then she's finally like, she's like 2000 and they're all like sold. And so she opens up her checkbook and she says, Oh, I only have 1800 in my checking account as high schoolers normally do. And then she says, oh, but wait, take your watch back, take your necklace back. That'll cover the difference. Um, Here's the check, gives it to him. And off she goes. And she's like, ha ha, suckers. I don't even want to date you. Ha ha ha. I'm going to be rich. Get out of here, Screech. I was never interested in you. And they were like, oh, Screech, are you okay? And he's like, yeah, it's all right. I have a date with her friend, Chloe. And they're like, Yeah, so he's getting right back on that merry-go-round. He hasn't learned anything. I wrote, nothing takes me back to the 90s like writing a personal check in a diner. (laughs) Just that whole sight of her getting out the checkbook and writing it was just very old-timey. But yeah, in this one we get, it's not specifically the thing of we have to make too many, but it is the thing of Zach's entrepreneurial sort of his his greed, his his getting ahead of himself, his trying to monetize his friend's skills, just like in Patty Duke, it leads to a bad path. Right. And this is a really fun premise. What we don't get in this episode really is a life lesson like we got in the other two. Well, that's saved by the bell for you. The life lesson is always if you are not fooling your parents or teachers or enemies try harder. You know, it's always about you you need a better scheme than you need a better disguise. They they never get the comeuppance that they should. That they should. But we also get another parallel in this episode with the last episode in addition to the con and the scheme which happens in all of them and Screech having a girlfriend. It that girlfriend is a special guest star that has gone on to do many other things, right? We got Punky Brewster and we had Tori Spelling in the last one. Yeah, uh strangely Screech's Love life actually produces a lot of a lot of heavy hitters. All right, we ready to move on to iCarly? Yes. So we have spanned the ages in this episode. We've gone from 1964 to 1992 and now we're in 2010. And what do we notice about these? It's that no matter when you start a business as a kid, it sucks. Yeah, it's a, in this economy, it's rough. In uh, all of these economies. <laughs> yeah. 
iCarly, I have to say, uh, this may be surprising to hear from a almost 44-year-old man, but I loved this show. I do, too. My brother and I were in on the ground floor. This was on when we were living together. We were adults at this time, but we always just had a thing where we liked stuff that was meant for other demographics. And it wasn't like we were watching it ironically to make fun of it. We were just like, you know, some of those rom-coms are pretty good. And some of these kids shows are actually pretty funny. And yeah, I Carly, there are certain aspects of it that we'll get into that are obviously you have to just sort of uh, forgive them because it is a kid's show, but there is an energy to it. There's a sense of humor to it. That is really great. It was same, you know, we're the same age. So I was nannying for a friend of mine that summer and the younger daughter loved watching these Nickelodeon shows that were on in the afternoon. There was the one about the like made up band. Big time rush. Big time rush. Yeah. It was the, those, she liked that one and she liked iCarly. And so I just kind of started, she would have them on and, you know, in her TV time in the afternoon and I would watch them. I was like, this iCarly is great. I would watch this all the time. I thought Spencer, the older brother, was hilarious. So same, same. I felt as a as an adult fell in love with iCarly. And it was that sense of humor. They have this, the like you were saying, the energy and the like quickness of silly wit, mm-hmm. right? That just comes popping out of their mouths at the people of all ages in the show is is delightful. It really is a charming show. If you haven't watched it, go back and watch it. So the premise, what is iCarly? We've got Carly, who's the titular character. She is like a young middle schooler when the show starts and then kind of moves on into high school. She, Her dad is like a general. In, he's in the military or something. And so he is often traveling and her older brother, who is a grown-up, uh, raises her. Yeah. And he's an artist, and they live in this really palatial loft, penthouse loft in uh, Seattle. And so it's all about her and her friend Sam, who's a girl, and then Freddie, who's a boy, and he lives across the hall. And they put on this little web show right. called iCarly. Yeah. And that's what was so appealing about it to me, The sense of humor and energy, like you said, is absolutely part of it. But the other big part of it was I was, I had a YouTube channel. I did web series. You know, we're sitting here in our basement recording this podcast to put out there on the internet. If you're the kind of person that has that impulse that you just want to do things and make stuff. And even if you've got a day job and it's not something that's going to make you a lot of money or anything, you still just want to do that. To see a show that was all about these kids using the internet and all this new technology to do that was really charming. And it's interesting watching it now. It reminded me how their actual web show is kind of annoying. Like that's one of the aspects of it. It's for kids, yeah. That I need to kind of just sort of step back from because this episode, as, as many or even all of them do, begin with them taping their show and they have this very distinct style that is very much like the YouTube videos of the time where it's Freddie's handheld camera. He's always sort of like moving forward and backwards and sort of like swaying around them. So there's always this constant motion and Sam and Carly are talking to the camera really fast and interrupting each other. And there's always 
the absurdism that you mentioned about the show in general is like on steroids whenever it's their web series. It's always like, we're going to have this guy eat spaghetti while he's on a skateboard and then we're going to throw meatballs at him. And, you know, it's it's yes. just like very weird and silly and kind of loud. And again, it's if that was what the actual show was, it wouldn't be for me. But I also really appreciate it as like, yeah, that probably is what these kids web show would be like. And other kids would like it. And other kids would like it. And so we get some more spaghetti based humor mm -hmm. uh, as we did in Saved by the Bell. Now we get the apparently a, a viewer of the iCarly web series has written in to say that, you know, to ask, can you use a handful of spaghetti as a Kleenex? So we get Sam blowing her nose in a handful of spaghetti and saying, yeah, I guess you can. And then she plops it down on a plate and then there's a little kid that's going to eat it and then later on we get the sight gag of their other friend Gibby yeah. who has like his whole thing is that he comes on and he will do anything he's the one that like oh we need somebody to throw meatballs at Gibby will do it. Oh, we need somebody to take their shirt off and run around like crazy person. Gibby will do it. And so he and he says his name, Gibby. Yeah. He's like the weirdo within the cast of weirdos. Right. He's the most sort of uninhibited. But the premise for this episode is they've had the idea to sell some of the stuff that they've used on their web series because everyone loves it. And so, you know, they're starting to take orders and mail out various, you know, props or items or whatever. Right. That things they've, used, they've the used. Yeah. Things they've used to have little silly gags to, you know, the, the silly bits that they do, the space where they record their studio it's getting crowded. And so they're going to say, you know, hey, anybody want to buy this? Oh, yeah, cool. You know, buy this. And one of the things that they that we've seen throughout the series is them wearing these shirts that have just random like two word phrases yeah. on them that don't make much sense, like obese hamster. If you remember Frank's hats from 30 Rock, similar gag, just yeah. have like weird absurdisms printed on your shirt and they call them penny tees. Right. Um, and so they're going to sell these penny tees or or they have one of them that's up for sale because they'd worn it in the show or a few of them that they'd worn in the show up for sale. They sold for the most money. Somebody said they'd pay $300 for this one that was on the show. So they're like, we can make a ton of those. We're funny. Snap to the next thing we see is Carly and Freddie having, you know, folding some penny tees because they've started producing them. And they're like, where's Sam? Sam rolls in with a dolly full of boxes that are completely stacked with completed penny yeah. tees. So just to pause on this for a second, it's Sam's idea to monetize the penny tees in the first place, right? Freddie informs them, oh, this is our bestseller. She says, oh, we should go into business on this. So she is very much slotting herself into the role of Patty Duke and Zach Morris. And she's saying, this is a way that we can get rich. And then, like you said, we have the cut to to Freddie and Carly trying to do it honestly, saying, hey, we're proud of ourselves. We made a dozen or whatever. Yeah, we got like 20 T's or whatever. Yeah. She rolls in with 90. They're like, how the heck did you produce that many? She goes, follow me. Right. So again- In a very creepy way. And they're like, what is going on? Now we see how over the years- We've shaken off a little bit of that idyllic utopian attitude from Leave It to Beaver. Now we get sweatshop humor. Right. So they go down into the basement of this building and 
Sam has recruited an entire class full of fourth graders from the school down the street to work for $5 a day in the basement and sweatshop conditions, yelling at them, throwing things at them, feeding them horse meat and or horse food and and dog food. Interestingly, some but not all of them are British. So like some of them go full Oliver Twist. Well, there's uh, one. Yeah, there's one kid. There's a little who's boy like, who goes. May I? He goes. There's a toothbrush in me chicken salad. Yes, they have sandwiches from the garbage, and, and they call them dumpster sandwiches. And there's a toothbrush yeah. sticking out of one. Obviously, they're going for the absurd extremism to to sort of uh sand the edges off of this subject. Right? They right. don't want you to be thinking about real life child labor issues they're saying sam has basically gotten into a time machine and gotten some like old-timey urchins to work for her right and so the thing to know about sam's character is that she's always the one that the reason they're selling these things in the first place the reason they you know not only is it crowded up there but they were raising money for sam's legal defense fund because she's the one they're trying to keep her out of juvie yeah that's the joke about sam is that she's always doing something illegal or almost illegal. And they love the word juvie. I forgot to mention in Saved by the Bell how Screech says the word underwear in that episode. And I always noticed when I was a kid, he says underwear all the time. And it's because I think if you're making a show primarily for 10 or 12 year olds, that word is funny and it's just a way to get that giggle. And I think on iCarly, for whatever reason, they thought the word juvie was hilarious and they always talk about it when, I mean, they talk about it because it's a real thing, right. but they love to say it like that. Uh, so they're always trying to, you know, they're trying to keep Sam out of juvie or raise money for her defense because she's always getting in some sort of legal trouble. At one point in the episode, Carly uh, Spencer, her older brother, it has a date. That's like the, one of the side plots in this episode is that Spencer is dating this woman who doesn't speak English. And so he's running off to go have this date and not paying any attention to what they're doing. And Carly makes a joke like, okay, we're going to go shoplifting. And he doesn't pay any attention. And Sam's like, really? And she's like, no, not really. Yeah. Sam's Um, a 'er ne'er-do-well. That's her whole thing. Now, we didn't really mention they got a ton of orders for these things, right? right. And that's why they found themselves in the same situation. Yes. The same as the Patty Duke show. They got more orders than, than they could handle in the time that they feel like they need to get them out. So they're like, oh man, we got to do something about this. So, and this is where you're saying how they, you know, we're getting sweatshop humor. We're not trying to have a, a, like a real take on child labor. Oh no. Because when Carly and Freddie come down and see the sweatshop, they're aghast. And then they say, not shut it down, but, oh, you think your way of getting productivity up is better than our way? Give us half these kids and we'll go do a good job at managing the other half get to stay in the sweatshop now granted they are children themselves so maybe it's not as horrifying (laughs) to think sure when the pit boss is 11 it's okay if the kid in the sweatshop is nine (laughs) but anyway yeah exactly carly and freddie are like what you're doing is terrible not because you're employing dozens of children to do the work for you but you're being too mean about it so let us take over so sam splits. no let us get a, let us get half right. and so we'll sam show says, you that they'll do better 
with our way of management. Yeah. So Sam splits them alphabetically. She says, if your last name starts with A through M, go with Freddie and Carly. All those kids jump for joy. She goes, oh, you think they're better? Well, screw you. You guys stay N through Z kids. You go with Freddie and Carly. So they each have half the kids. Now, this was another thing I really related to. Freddie and Carly have the same problem that I did when I was a boss. They're people pleasers, right? They don't want to get on the kids for taking breaks or whatever. They want to be cool bosses and laid back leaders. So they say, we're going to get you snacks. We're not going to demand that you work till a certain time. We're going to give you the respect you deserve so that you in turn will do a good job. And what happens? And they play all day. So they, they start out upstairs working hard and making teas. And then they come up, they say, it's time for a break. Here's, you know, lunch or whatever. Now, you know, you're scheduled to work until 530. Make sure, you know, make sure that you're doing that unless you want to take a break at five, you know, a little before 530, we'll come up and we'll all have some blue tea together and won't it be nice and whatever. And then they come back up at at the time they say they're going to come up with the blue tea and the kids are all playing around, not doing anything. And they say, yeah, we're leaving. We're not, you know, we've made six teas. You can't make us do anything. And they peace out. Yeah. So basically, and I don't know if this is necessarily the point you want to be making, but Freddie and Carly's nice guy angle was just as disastrous as as Sam's slave driver attitude. And so their kids all leave. Sam's the the British kid asks Sam, when might we lunch? I wrote that down because I thought that was funny. <laughs> but yeah, basically everything sort of blows up in their faces, right? On both sides. As it should, because child labor is not okay. Um, So then they go and they're going to have this meeting at the smoothie place where they always get smoothies. So, oh, and the kids, the Sam's kids also walk out on her because she's about to give them this food that's from these dented cans that says, will strengthen hooves. So it's meant for horses. And the kids are like, we're not eating this. This is horrible conditions. We're out of here. So then you get the girl that led the revolt from the basement kids and the guy that led the revolt from the upstairs kids. The two union reps. Right. The two union reps, they're going to meet with the three main characters at the smoothie place and talk about, you know, how how we can go forward because they have all these orders. And the kids are like, yeah, we're not coming back. We're not working for either of you. Like there is no solution or compromise to come to here. We're making our own penny teas. Thanks. Yeah. And they're like, well, you can't do that. They're only funny because we wrote them and we're on the web show and we're hilarious. And the kids are like, no, we hired writers. And then these two other kids turn around with their legal pads and start spitballing all the phrases they have. And then they look around the planet smoothie and everybody in there is wearing a penny tea that they've bought from these kids. Yeah. So again, similar to the Patty Duke show of like, well, if you're going to base everything on the whims of the irrational teenagers, then uh, you're in for a bumpy ride. Well, and all, and not just the whims, but like whatever you're making is very easily replicable. Right. If and it's easy, if it's that easy to succeed, it's that easy to be got by someone else. Exactly. So now you have competition and there's no, you're not going to be able to produce what you want to produce. Yeah. So I would say in the case of all of these, this is a refreshingly simple sort of straightforward theme or message that we're dealing with, right? They're all a little different, but it sort of comes down to 
even in the slightly more subversive ones like Saved by the Bell or iCarly and you know they're only slightly more subversive <laughs> it still is about kids sort of you know biting off more that they can chew or getting those dollar signs in the eyes or just sort of in some way extending themselves a little bit beyond what they're ready for and getting put in their place basically by the realities of the real world in this sort of teachable way. Yeah. And and in the case of iCarly, it isn't grownups, yeah. right, that, that are doing this. It isn't, you know, Patty Duke, it was the government and all the, you know, other the permits and everything you had to get to do that. And also kids changed their mind. The market changed, right? In the case of iCarly, they get their comeuppance from other children. Other children have figured out how to do their business better. Yeah. But yeah, I feel like in all cases, if you're a kid, just be happy with your allowance and don't try to get rich quick, I think is sort of what we're learning from this. Yeah. And also, I mean, all of these kids are pretty living pretty privileged lives in general because that's how it, it goes with television oftentimes. I mean, Carly and Sam and Freddie have a web show. They're you know, if it's as popular as they say it is, it's monetized. So they don't need to sell the penny teas. Yeah. If you notice that your friend is really good at something, you know, making spaghetti sauce or sewing dresses or whatever, you don't necessarily need to go to this is the way that we can make our fortune. In the case of Beaver, I think it's just insist on cash payments. Don't take personal checks. I don't no. know. All right. Well, so much for the starting a business when you are a child. What are we talking about next week? Next week, look out because this is a stick up. We have a hostage situation in a bank. All of our shows kind of tiptoe around or directly parody Dog Day Afternoon, the movie. And we are going to watch different strokes. Season three, episodes one and two, The Bank Job. Family Matters, season two, episode seven, Dog Day Halloween. The Nanny, season four, episode 16, The Bank Robbery. And we'll finish off with Bob's Burgers, season two, episode two, Bob Day Afternoon. That's right. Next week, we will put up our dukes for the sitcom Bank Robberies. And until then, we will declare this segment of the sitcom study concluded. Thank you for listening to The Sitcom Study. Tell us what you think or share your own TV tropes and topic ideas by sending a self-addressed stamped email to sitcomstudypodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Instagram. And if you like the show, consider leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. It helps us boost those precious Nielsen ratings. The Sitcom Study is recorded in front of a live studio dog. 